classes that are available, one hosted by Dr. Brock Miller, who's going through the Minor Prophets currently, and one hosted by myself as we're going through the book of James, and we're looking at an active faith. And so if you're looking for something to do Sunday nights at 6 p.m., yep, that's the party time. We'd love to have you here at Open Door Baptist Church at 1128 Oats Road, Prattville, Alabama, 36066. Check us out on the website at www.odbaptist.com. What is a gumshoe? Does that have anything about the sticky stuff we step on going about our day? Does it have anything to do with what's stuck underneath the desks at school? Actually not. It's a common misconception. It's a term that's not even used very often today, but a gumshoe is a private investigator. Welcome in if you're watching online tonight. We just got done with our prayer and praise time, and if you have a prayer request, you can leave it down in the in the comment section, and and uh, our assistant pastor or me or somebody will get will pray will pray over that, or you can go to our website, which also you can access uh, through the different platforms, and we have a prayer line there as well. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter four tonight as we study the life of the Messiah, looking uh, at all four gospel accounts from a Jewish perspective. And tonight we are picking things up after studying last week and seeing how John the Baptist had been arrested and saw the different things that motivated Jesus to leave the area around Jerusalem and head north to Galilee. And as he does so, if you look on a map, you'll notice that go due north to get up there to the area of Galilee. And in between there uh, is Samaria. Now, typically the Jewish folks would avoid it altogether, but we're going to see some more insight on that tonight. So that's where we're picking things up, that Jesus is traveling through Samaria. So John chapter number four tonight, we're going to begin things in verse number five. The Bible says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sukkar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, it looks like Sychar, but if you look at the Greek, at least the Greek pronunciation would be more Sukkar. Um, but it's a very biblical piece of ground. So Jesus is traveling through, and he comes to this place that Jacob had given to his son. You can read about this if you want in Genesis 33, where uh, Jacob buys it, and then in Genesis 48, where you find that, that uh, Jacob gives it to Joseph. Now, this is a significant place because it's... Uh, there's a town called Shechem in the middle there, and it's located between two mountains. And in the, this town and where Jesus was at and where this piece of land is at is, is right there in between these, these two mountains. Now, these two mountains, one's called Mount Ebal, and the other is Mount Gerizim, and it's a very significant place. Now, it's not only significant because Jacob uh, gave it to Joseph, and we're going to find that Jacob's well is there and some of these other things, but it's, it's significant because of these two mountains. You say, no, why is that? What does it matter? Because if you read in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter number 11, you can read that, that God commanded that once the children of Israel came in to the promised land, that when they got there to the middle of the land, and where this is in Samaria, if you look at the greater area, it's kind of like dead center in the middle, and uh, these two mountains are there, and God said, when you get there, I want you to build an altar on Mount Ebal, and then I want you to go down, and, uh, and on, the, on the altar, you need to write all the commandments, which, man, 613 of them, must have had some small Hebrew writing, but he said, then get all the people, and I want you to divide them out, and you can read there that 
part of the tribes were required to go to Mount Ebal, six of them, and five of them were going to go to the other side, and then the Levites were down there in the middle in the valley. And basically, God commanded that they read the law, and the Mosaic law was conditional, which means that God said, if you do this, if you're obedient, good things are going to happen. But if you're disobedient, bad things are going to happen. So there was a list of blessings, and there were a list of curses. Now, it's interesting the different tribes that, that God said to put on which mountain. And the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin are all on Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim is the mountain that all the tribes went that were going to hear the blessings. Now, it doesn't mean the ones that went on the cursing side were cursed per se. It just means that, that uh, God was visually giving them an illustration that when you're entering into this covenant, we're going to read it together. And after every blessing and every curse, if, if he said, you know, if, if you obey, I'm going to give you great prosperity. Well, then the people around Mount Gerizim and the tribes over there, they were all required to say, Amen! And then, then they would say, but if you don't obey what I said, instead of getting prosperity, you're going to go into poverty. And then all the ones that were on the tribe of Mount Ebal, although on that mountain, had to say, Amen! And they went through all the blessings and all the curses going back and forth, Amen, Amen, Amen. It's kind of like when I was a kid in Awana and we sang that song, Hallelujah, 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 Praise ye the Lord. Some of you know that song, you know? Okay, some of the children were. Kind of like that. They're going back and forth. And um, so this is a very, very significant place. And God was reminding them that, you know, you, you, you do things the wrong way and you obey, disobey God, there's, there's punishment for that. Now, aren't you glad that you and I are no longer under Mosaic law? Now, again, don't mean to say the Old Testament has no meaning. That's not what I'm saying. But we are not under Mosaic law. And I'm glad that the covenant of grace, in other words, when you got saved and I got saved, is an unconditional covenant. Eh, grace versus law boy, it's a lot better under grace. Because with grace, God says, I'm going to do this for you regardless of your behavior. And you say, I know the other people who attack our theology say, yeah, you people teach the people, Christians can live however they want. Well, I usually, I like to surprise them and go, yeah, you're doing it. You know, you're making choices. Now, you can choose to do whatever you want, but you can't choose the consequences that happen as a result of what you choose to do. That does happen. And in the New Testament, while we're not under a under Mosaic law that you can't do this and can't do, and you have to do this, but we are under the law of sowing and reaping. And we are under God's blessing and God does bless obedience and God does bring chastisement in the life of the believer when we do the wrong thing. So it's not as if there's no consequences, but our standing before God is not like in the Old Testament, mainly physical. In our time, our standing before God is primarily spiritual. In other words, no matter what you and I do, praise God, when you came to Jesus Christ, he declared you righteous and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and nothing can change that, not even you. And there's a hallelujah, because if we could mess it up, we would. And so I'm very thankful that we are under the new covenant and, and not, you know, the old covenant. And that's why, by the way, this is free. It's not even in my notes. Hopefully I don't get too late tonight. But this is, we got done to praise note a little bit early, you know. But this is why it bothers me a little bit where, you know, you'll have people in, in our culture today, there's a lot of wickedness, and there is. But many people will quote Leviticus and stuff like that to, to judge people on sexual sins and stuff like that. 
and they'll, they'll say this is going to happen and they're quoting Old Testament Mosaic law. We're not, we're not under Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, the sin of those sins are still sins and the New Testament confirms those and God is interested in sexual purity and all these other issues. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but to utilize those verses and say like, oh, the Old Testament says you've got to take them out there and hang them or whatever. You know, sometimes the Old Testament law was pretty, pretty blunt. Well, no, that doesn't give you the biblical proof to say if somebody does something, you can drag them out and hang them. No, you're not systematically rightly interpreting the word of God. You're, you're, you're mixing covenants. And if you want to be under the Old Testament Mosaic law, you know, I feel bad for you because it's a bad way to go. I'm glad that I'm under the law of grace and, um, and I live under grace. And so this place they were at between these two mountains was really, really significant. Um, many people said, and there's a, there's a, a theory out there that people have, I, I watched a, a YouTube thing on it, somebody tried to test this out, but it is said that the way Mount Nebel, or Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were there, that when you were down in that valley, that there was a spot there around the middle, or if you're down in there, that you could hear from this side to this side to everywhere, it's like this, you know, sound thing where you could hear all over the place. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what they say. Um, I guess today if you go there, there's, the, of course, our, our Muslim friends have made, uh, um, uh, they've, they've got a tomb of some Muslim saint there on, on the eastern side. So it, 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 you can go visit there today if, if you head over to Israel. But uh, when you come to the, this passage of Scripture, most of the time the setting is never even explored. But we're going to find as we go through this, and we won't get to it tonight, that it is significant understanding why the Samaritan woman says what she does and why and Jesus responds the way he does because this is a very significant setting. I thought to myself as Jesus was coming through there, you know, he is the I am. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And uh, I personally believe that the Lord Jesus you know, was appeared in the Old Testament more than once. And um, I thought to myself, now that Jesus comes walking onto this, this site in human flesh, and yet he, I don't know, thinks to himself, you know, Jacob and I have talked about this place, and he told me all about how great it was, and I think they've kind of let the place go, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that, that he had been there, obviously, from creation and the whole, the whole thing and now he's there and I just I don't know it's just amazing to see the, the creator the God man in this place where so many thousands of years earlier you know uh, Joseph and Jacob and just these things were just it's just interesting to me so we move on all right verse number six the Bible goes on and says now Jacob's well was there Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour so here's Jacob's well and here's another viable or verifiable biblical location again one of the people said what's the difference between these all these holy books are the same no they're not the Bible's withstood uh, literary criticism, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but literary standing to the claims that it makes. You know, many other holy books just make a bunch of parables and stuff like that. The Bible names specific people during specific times and specific places that are very, very verifiable. 
And what has been amazing to me as a guy who likes apologetics um, is you, you study history and our adversaries, our, our critics don't like to remind themselves of all of, from the hundreds of, of years back where they would say, see the Bible says this, you know, there's no such place as this. There's no such person as this. And then the more archaeology comes along, the more we find out, uh, yes, there was. Chalk another one up for the Bible. And I don't know how many times the Bible has to be, you know, that God shows you that it's, you know, testable and provable that, that, that you doubt it. Um, and here's another one. Now, it tells us that um, this well, which I understand, I saw some pictures of it. I Normally, I, I thought about getting a picture and showing it to you. It's a really deep well. Um, to get the water, you had to go down quite a bit. But it also tells us it was about the sixth hour. Now, if you look at it from Roman time, that's about six in the evening. But you're thinking Jewish, that makes it about noontime, which would be typically around the hottest part of the day. And the Bible says that Jesus comes on this scene to this well, and the Bible tells us that he was tired from the long journey. Now, we know he'd been walking up from Jerusalem, and uh, you, know, you can figure out how, you know, when the hours it would have taken to walk here, depending on how many times you stopped, things like that. But isn't it amazing to consider that the God-man could get tired? Now, in theology class, we call this, as we studied, you know, uh, Christology, the hypostatic union of Christ. That, that Jesus was all God and all man. And, you know, there's early church fathers argued and discussed this and it always, you know, cracks me up because if you think, if you can explain that, then you're lying to yourself because that, that's a little above our, our deal. But the Bible clearly teaches it and it's clearly true. But all of its nuances are, I don't, I don't have, I'm, I'm, I don't have a full grasp on it, but he was the God man. And isn't it something to know that the one who came and lived a perfect life, that he knew what it was to be tired? Now, this is particularly um, meaningful to me, not because of me, but because of you guys. You know, I, I didn't realize early on, I thought it was, I didn't, know, I didn't know what God and why he was doing what he was doing. When I got out of college with my degree in theology, and pastoral ministry, I, I went back to our home church and I began to teach Bible and English and I was a coach and taught phys ed, you know, coach basketball and soccer and things like that. And, um, but I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into ministry, you know, that, that'll, but I taught for several years and then got married and, you know, I was just, I couldn't, I'd honestly, it was just, there's, I couldn't pay my bills, you know, I mean, I was just getting paid nothing, and um, young in the faith, and in terms of my, yeah, I had a theology degree, but I was only 20-something, so young, and, and um, I said, God, what are, you, what are you doing, and I ended up, you know, to meet the needs of what I had to, for a family, I ended up getting into sales, and I started out at selling copiers, office equipment, Oh, hated that job. Um, but then I ended up into property management, and then I ended up into, I was managing senior centers, retirement homes, um, and then I got even back into sales. Then I ended up working for Pensacola Christian with Abeka and did that for almost a decade. And um, and one of the things that I'm, I look back at it now and 
realize is I'm thankful to at least have some semblance of understanding what it is to work a real job, quote unquote, and on a Wednesday in particular, to have worked all day and then come to church at night. You know, again, you all know me, I left independent Baptist legalism decade or so ago, maybe longer, you know, this, sometimes you need to rest, sometimes you need to stay home, there's issues, you know, um, but most of you here tonight are here all the time faithfully, and I just want you to know, I recognize that many times y'all come here and you're tired, and you should be. You know, you, you've worked hard, and that's why one of the reasons I try on Wednesdays, my family will tell you, I, I'm very protective of Wednesdays because I rest a lot on Wednesdays because of my own health needs because I know I can't come here tired. I, don't, I, I owe that to you guys. I need to bring energy and be a goofball like I typically am. You know, I need to be, I need to be wired because y'all have been watching your kids all day, doing homeschooling all day, working a job, whatever. But isn't it great to serve a God that understands what it is to be tired? And that blows my mind that the God of all gods, the creator, would allow himself as he incarnate himself into flesh and blood, would identify with us down to the place where he walked all day, he'd been ministering, and he was tired. Now, What's significant here is John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are just, I, I can't even overemphasize the, the theological significance of these two chapters, especially when it regards to soteriology. In other words, so that's a big word, forgive me, in, in regards to salvation and the doctrine of how we get saved. These two chapters are critical. We went from the moral religious guy in chapter 3 to the immoral Samaritan woman in this, in this chapter. So, Jesus is about to have what I'm going to call a crucial conversation, which is a great book. If you haven't read that book, Brother Oscar got me to read that book, Crucial Conversations. It's a good book, isn't it? Um, it's, it's not necessarily a Christian book, per se. I don't believe it was, but it was a great... That in our life, and day by day, we have crucial conversations. Jesus was about to have one with the Samaritan woman. Here he is, really tired, Really tired, but he's got more to do. Kind of like you feel at 5 o'clock when you come from work and the kids are excited about coming to church and there's, there's going to be, a, you know, barbecue at church tonight before the meal. You got to come, right? You got to go, I got to take it up a notch. There's something more to do. How often is it that we shut down too early? Now, again, please do not misunderstand me. There is a time for you to get away and rest and there are some times and days where that's the appropriate thing to do. Do not let your legalism... I, I know a guy that is so... There's nobody here, okay? So, here. I wouldn't talk about you guys, except when I'm preaching to other churches and hoping they're not online. I said, man, I have this guy at our church. His name is Big Mike. Man, you wouldn't believe the problems I got to go with. Um, but his wife's family lives from out of the area and most of them are non-Christians and when they come to visit sometimes they'll only be in town for a day or two and it'll fall on a Wednesday night or something he refuses to stay home and be with his family that night and 
Instead, he goes to church. Do you think that family is, that's a better example? Well, in their particular case, I know it's not. So there's an appropriate time for us, and it's okay. But we need to be careful with that, because if you always do what your flesh wants, the flesh is always going to want to take the break. Now, notice the Bible does say that Jesus got there and he was tired. So what did he do? He sat down. It's not wrong to figure a way, how can I get through this? You know, maybe you need a cup of coffee. <laughs> Give me a little caffeine, I can make it. Or, you know, um, That's okay. But Jesus knew that he had a divine appointment. And tonight I want you to remind yourself that sometimes there's going to be places and times, and I believe that, that it, we're just sometimes not aware of it, we don't consider it. Maybe a, there's some divine appointment that God has for you, and oftentimes in my life, the times that I don't want to talk to somebody is the time that God asks me to talk to somebody. And I use the excuse saying, well, I'm tired. So what? You got eternity to rest. And Jesus was at the place he was supposed to be at the time he was supposed to be there because he had a crucial conversation that he was about to have even though he was tired. All right, let's pick up verse 7. I think we're going to stop here tonight. Uh, Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. So the Bible tells us this woman of Samaria shows up, and she's there at the noon hour, which indicates to us a couple things that she was outcast even of her own people because if you were a woman and had to go get draw water from this deep well you would want to do that in the morning when it was cooler don't wait till the hot part of the day why would she wait until there because she was probably outcast by her own people let alone uh, the Jewish people now Dr. Frutenbaum spends quite a bit of time in his study and I'm going to give I'm going to cover some of this explaining the racial, cultural, and religious differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's very helpful in understanding what's about to unfold in this conversation that Jesus and this woman are about to have. You see, in the first century when Jesus lived, there was a complex relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And it goes all the way back to the Assyrian captivity. In other words, when the ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, when they sinned long and over and over and God said, I'm going to bring you into captivity and the Assyrians came down and wiped them out. And the Assyrians had a, had a methodology that when they conquered a people, they took the people that they conquered and they pulled them out of their land. It'd be like if somebody ever took us up and they pulled us out of sweet home Alabama and made us go to uh, Connecticut or, you know, I'm trying to think of some place. Oh, New York, although upstate New York would be great. All right, New York City, California, places we don't want to go. And then they took the Californians and brought them here. Now, the few real, real true blue roll tides would probably have some issue with these newcomers, wouldn't they? Well, what happened is the Assyrians did this. They pulled a lot of the Jewish, the ten tribes, northern tribes out, and they brought other people in, and that some of the people did remain, and they began to intermarry with these people and adopt some of their cultural stuff and some of their religious stuff, and they eventually became known as the Samaritans, so the Jewish people looked at them as half-breeds or um, they, they certainly had religious, I mean, racial issue with them. And what happened was eventually the southern kingdom of Judah, eventually they, you know, and they eventually fell to Babylon and went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. 
And then at the end of the 70 years, God brings them back under Ezra. And when he brings them back into the land, they find that these Samaritans are living in the central part of the land where the 10 northern tribes had lived. And you can read about this in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, if you don't believe me. But basically, Ezra tells us that when they first got back to start rebuilding the temple, because remember, it had been destroyed, and they came back to rebuild the temple, that the Samaritan descendants came and said, hey, let us help you. And Ezra said, no way. You're an immoral. You know, they, 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 they were, God, they didn't want any part of them helping. Well, you can say that was mean or whatever, but the, the text goes on to show us that these people really didn't want to help. They really wanted to get them to compromise and join up with them. That's what they really wanted. But God knew that and said, no, you're not going to help. You know, sometimes be careful the people that offer to help you. I saw it online today that this was the terminology, a frenemy. Anybody ever heard that term before? Frenemies? I'd never, I don't think I'd ever heard that before. All the younger people in there are going, yeah, I, I'm an old person. You know, but I like the term. You, know, th- you think they're their friend, but really from the get-go, they're your enemy. And I, um, can, here, here's, here's a good piece of advice. As somebody who's been in the church where division, an opportunity for division runs deep. If somebody in the church that you've known their existence, you've had an acquaintance relationship with maybe, okay? They've never one time asked you to their home. They've never one time spent time with you after a service just hamming it up for any significant time. They've never one time sacrificially done something to help you and your family. But all of a sudden, they're on the phone with you and they want to talk to you and they, they value your opinion on something. You need... It, it, it astounds me how many Christians are so naive. They go, oh, they just want to talk to me about it. No, they don't. They've got, a, they've got a root of bitterness. They've got a bunch of gossip. And they want you to join in with them and they pretend to be your friend. And churches are divided because many Christians are so, they go to the Samaritans if you want to say, yeah, come help us build a temple. Come help us build a local church. No, 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 no. If, if somebody that has never been your friend in any depth all of a sudden just out of the blue wants to be a friend, that's okay. But if the first thing they start doing is being negative about somebody else, warning lights need to be going off. You see, they were trying to rebuild when Ezra came back to rebuild the temple. Why were they going to rebuild the temple? So they could reinstill worship. Frenemies want to do gossip, not worship. And we got to be smarter. These people became a hindrance and they became the opposition in every turn when Ezra tried to build the temple and then later when Nehemiah came, same deal when they tried to build the walls. These people were problematic. So from the generations that went down from those events, you can imagine in Jesus' day, there was deep-seated contempt and hatred and dislike between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. Now, the Samaritans, because they had this access to some Jewish mindset and even the worship of Jehovah, per se, once Ezra built the temple in Jerusalem, rebuilt it, and said, you can't help us, and they showed their true colors, well, eventually, they needed a place to worship themselves. So guess what they did? They built their own temple. And guess where they built it? They built it on Mount Gerizim, the mountain that Jesus is sitting below, by Jacob's well 
and it was a very holy place to the Samaritans. Matter of fact, the Samaritans were very committed to the first five books of the Bible, the, the law portion of the Old Testament. Some, some rabbis wrote in kind of rebuking their people that the Samaritans knew the first five books of the Bible, many of them better than the Jewish people did. But one interesting fact that Dr. Frutenbaum points out that I did not know is because they moved the temple and they, to Mount Gerizim, they built their own Samaritan temple that was kind of a, a hybrid worship of some pagan gods and worship of Jehovah. They went through the first five books of the Bible and every mention in the first five books of Jerusalem in there, they took out and replaced it with Mount Gerizim. They just crossed it out. We'll just fill in our own place. You know, that's no problem. They even where Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah, they switched that. And they said, no, that didn't happen on Mount Moriah. That happened on Mount Gerizim. You got to be really careful with people who mess with the word of God. That's what the Mormons do. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They have to have their own translation to make you see what they want you to see. So the Samaritans, though, had a form of, of Judaism, but it was, it was a hybrid mix. But there was a lot of contempt between these two. Now, another thing that was interesting, a big point of contention between these two groups is the Jewish mindset when it comes to pronouncing the name of God, Jehovah, it, even to this day, they won't put the vowels on Hebrew. There's not there. But even in English today, if you're ever reading an article and you see the word spelled out, capital G dash D. You ever seen that in a writing somewhere? That, that means it's a Jewish person is writing that and they have such a respect for the name of God that they won't even write the complete name of God. They just do G with a dash and then a D. And in Jesus' day, the people would not speak the name of Jehovah. Matter of fact, the rabbi said the only one that could do it was the high priest and only on the day of uh, a day of atonement. Versus the Samaritans spoke God's name every single day. Can you imagine the, the, if, how that goes? And I thought to myself, which one are we more like? This is, again, it wasn't really my notes. This is just free. Um, and I'm thankful because we're under the covenant of grace and he is our Abba Father that we can talk to him. But I'll tell you this. I do not believe that the God of the Old Testament is characteristically or character in terms is different in the New Testament. He still has a real thing about his name. And when Christians are, you, I'm, I'm just giving you what I'm telling you, I would not be taking God's name in vain. I, I think God still takes that really, really serious. There's a lot of contempt between the Samaritans and Jewish people. There are a lot of unwritten and written rules on both sides because they needed to have a relationship. They, they were geographically located in each, each other and they were passing through each other's territory all the time and each side wanted to make a buck. I mean, there was a whole, you know, marketing crowd there that you could, you know, sell your stuff to and so they, they both had these rules about how they could do it. Now, one interesting rule they had was if the Jewish people were going through the land of Samaria and they were coming from Jerusalem, they were heading north away from Jerusalem, they were welcome to go through Samaria. That you could buy stuff and you had no problems. But if Jewish people were coming from the, the north towards Jerusalem, they either would not let you go through their land or they would tax you or bug you. 
And the reason for that, the Samaritans' thinking was, we want all the Jews to leave Jerusalem. So everyone that leaves is one less that's there. This is why in John chapter 4, we find that Jesus, where is it, which way is he traveling? Away. He's heading north. No problem. We're going to find a little later in the life of Messiah. Remember that time he's coming back through and he wants to go through the Samaritan villages and they tell him, no, you can't come here? Check it out. Guess which way he's heading? Towards Jerusalem. That's the time. Remember where John and James, I think it was John and James say, yeah, let's call down fire. Jesus, we let him burn him up. You understand why they wanted to do that? It makes, you know, it makes sense to me. Now the last thing, and I'll stop for the night. We'll get done early. Wow, how about that? Um, they did have this business relationship, but both of them held this position. You ever notice that sometimes um, it's difficult to accept something for free from somebody else? Now, I found when I got into the ministry, one of the hardest adjustments I had, because bear in mind, like I just told you, I was in sales, I was in the professional world, God was blessing Jen and I financially, I was used to giving financially. Then I got in the ministry, <laughs> and also for many various reasons, people want to give stuff to us as a, as a token of their love, and it, it's meaningful to them, and I had to learn sometimes to accept stuff because I was robbing them of a blessing that they wanted to do. But there are some people, if they give you something free, how do you feel? That I got to give them something back. Now, some people, and I would say even in the Christian faith, you need to sometimes learn how to accept things graciously. And if somebody shows themselves that they give you something free, but it really wasn't free, you just learn who you're dealing with. But salvation, God says, I'm going to give it to you free. You know, one of the hardest things I find that mankind, when you give them a free grace message, is even inside Christianity, is they don't like it because it's free. But when you in an adversarial relationship like the Jews and the Samaritans were, you didn't want some Jewish person giving you something for free because then you are indebted to them and, whoa, you don't want to be indebted. That broke the unwritten rules both ways. So you could buy something or you could sell something to one another and usually at a higher price, you know, they were trying to, you know, oh, you're a Jewish person? Okay, yours costs twice as much, you know. Um, but notice in verse 7 as I ended tonight, Jesus, the first thing that comes out, the first words in this conversation is Jesus says, give me to drink. He's asking a Samaritan to give him something free. That's breaking the rules. As we'll see, Jesus is breaking racial rules, gender rules, all kinds of rules here of that day. And that's why I will continue, I have, and I will continue something that really is um, inside accurate biblical Christianity, there is no room for racism. There is not. And it sometimes stuns me, and I understand people are different, 
But something we all have in common here tonight, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe we have all in common tonight, is we're all Gentiles in here tonight. I don't know. The Jewish people may have disliked the Gentiles even more than the Samaritans. I don't know. It had been close. So if you think that Christianity is only for some race, just remember that your Savior is a Jewish carpenter. And he sets the example right here by violating the cultural norms and saying to a Samaritan woman, hey, I want to have a relationship with you that's based not on obligation, but on freedom. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference in relationships that are based on obligation versus freedom because genuine, deepest love occurs where? Inside of freedom. So, love everyone. Yeah? Um... That's what Jesus did. So I know y'all are tired. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for those of you who stayed up and watched this live. Maybe you're tired as well. Maybe I put you to sleep. It's, it's a gift I have. Um, but uh, I appreciate y'all tuning in. And uh, I would tell you any announcements we have, but unless some of you know something that's going on that I don't, you know, Jenny's not here. Pastor Danny's not here. Yeah, Michelle? Yes, the Iwana Grand Prix is Sunday night. There's no more workshops, right, Josh? That was last week. So if you have any car questions, though, they can see you or Michael Bryant if you have any questions on that. But um, So that'll be Sunday night. There'll be no growth groups or anything. All of us are going to be back there again. People say, why do you do that? I said, because it's important to our kids. And, you know, so I'm gonna, you're getting me off of a tangent. I got done five minutes early. You know, the kids are not anyway, you know. But oh, I don't have kids anymore. So what? Yeah, you do. There's a whole bunch of them Sunday night running around here that just want to be loved by you. And I'll tell you, if you'll invest in them a little bit, I'm telling you. They're, oh, yeah, Ryan and Susan. You're, yes, you. Kathy Bell, come give me a hug. It make, it make my whole, you know, all your kids. They're, you know, but I, I'm like, I want to go there, and I like watching them. Just, my biggest problem is I want everybody to win, and yet at the same time, I cannot honestly say, no, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. Some kids are going to cry, but in my heart, I want them all to win. That's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, anybody, any other announcements? I don't think we have any going yet. Brother Brock? Oh, yeah, there is. Uh, there, there's got to be one this Friday night, right? Does anybody know? Uh, Joe, I, I know, just because you're a Jones, like you're supposed to know everything drive-in does, no? In the blink of an eye. I don't think I've seen that movie. Um, so it'll be at, at sundown, and, and uh, obviously anybody at our church, if you ever want to help, you don't have to, you know. No kidding. All right, and you're hosting a soccer tournament as well? So this is a new venture, right? Wow. Wow. That, yeah, Oscar, is it you're going? Is that what you said? <laughs> Oscar. <laughs> Don't you love it? Just because you speak Spanish, you have to, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, 
we all speak English. Should we be at every English-speaking uh, soccer tournament? Every, you know, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, well, we didn't pray about that. Yeah, Mike. That's this Saturday too, right? The Diamonds. So if you're over 50, you want to go? Um, they go into Fort Toulouse, meeting here at the church. You know what time y'all are meeting here? It's on the website, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, <laughs> say 8 o'clock and bring biscuits. Okay. Oh, I love Fort Toulouse. That's great out there. Oh, you're the best, Michael Bryant. We're do. All right, let me close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the time tonight. Thank you for uh, the teaching of your word. Thank you for the way you demonstrated love. Uh, help us to love one another. Um, thank you that uh, we are under grace and that your love is uh, unending. And even when we fail, uh, which all of us do, that our standing for you doesn't change, but God, help us to change the behavior that grieves your heart, that we can experience a greater measure of your presence and therefore a greater measure of blessing. I pray a blessing on every person that's here tonight, those who are watching live. Um, I pray you give them an extra energy and blessings of being here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here tonight. God.